Hello and welcome back to the Agents of Change in Environmental Justice podcast, a partnership between Environmental Health News and Columbia University Mailman School of Public Health. I'm Brian Binkowski, Senior Editor at Environmental Health News and the Editor of Agents of Change, coming at you from the Agents of Change North Country Bureau up here in Northern Michigan. Before we get to today's show, I wanted to bring to your attention a podcast that's on our radar from Dr. Tamara James Todd, head of the Environmental Reproductive Justice Lab at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, and her team comes the Beauty Plus Justice Podcast. Dr. James Todd has frank, eye-opening, and inspiring conversations with leaders in healthcare, academia, nonprofits, and clean beauty businesses about what it will take to create a more clean and equitable future of beauty for everyone. Tune in to learn more about the history and context surrounding beauty injustices, the potential impacts on our health, and hear from some of the amazing individuals working in this field. The first episode, folks, dropped last week, and you can find it on all major streaming podcast platforms. Again, that is Beauty Plus Justice Podcast. And new episodes will be released every two weeks. Today's guest on our podcast, which you should subscribe, rate, and review everywhere you listen to this, is Ashley James, an ORISE fellow in the U.S. EPA Office of Children's Environmental Protection and a former reporting intern at EHN.org. I know Ashley very well. She talks about reframing how we think about children's health, what organizers and regulators can learn from each other, finding her love of nature later in life, and what songs she's been working on on her guitar. Enjoy. All right. I am super excited to be joined by Ashley James. Ashley, how are you doing? I am doing well. How are you? I'm doing excellent today. And where are you today? I am in Maryland, just uh, slightly outside of uh, Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C. Excellent. So let's talk about place a little bit. I have had the good chance of working with you, the the opportunity to work with you, but I actually don't know where did you grow up and did it have any impact on your interest in environmental health and justice? Yeah, that's a good question. So I was born in Brooklyn, New York, um, but I spent a good amount of my youth, so middle, middle school and high school, in Chester, Virginia, which is just south of um, of Richmond. And I'm not sure if that impacted my interest in environmental health consciously, but I did live just three miles from Hopewell, Virginia, which, as you know, my most recent environmental health uh, news story is about. And I did notice that Hopewell was overburdened with a lot of pollution and I remember hating seeing the smokes of the stacks of smoke. I hated the smells coming from that direction. So maybe subconsciously it did impact my my interest. Totally. And for listeners, uh, we are recording this the day that Ashley's new feature came out about a proposed blue zone in Hopewell, Virginia. So if you go to ehn.org. You can check that out. So you went to the University of Richmond and then eventually got your master's of public health at Emory University. What was it about public health that grabbed you? Yeah, so I actually started off 
as an undergraduate, my initial interest was in marine biology and environmental ecology. I worked in a sponge lab and I had really great experiences doing research in the Florida Keys. And then I went to study abroad in Bocos del Toro, Panama, which is um, where the school, one of the sites for the School for Field Studies, which is like a basically what it sounds like, a field study, a study abroad program. And I went there thinking that I would go even deeper into, um, you know, the marine biology world, which I did. But I also got exposed to social science. And that's really where my passion for environmental health and justice started. So I'll go a little further into that. Uh, When I was abroad, I interacted with a lot of indigenous communities and I had the opportunity to even live with an indigenous family for one week during a homestay. And I learned that they're definitely a population that was, you know, experienced marginalization, discrimination, had their land and their natural resources threatened constantly, you know, didn't have great access to education and employment opportunities, you know, those social determinants of health. And I definitely observed health impacts as well. And then when I did a research project that ultimately ended up being a social science project where I interviewed community members about waste management on the islands because basically they didn't have the infrastructure to properly manage all the waste. And there was tons of trash everywhere. So I was kind of trying to investigate that and when I, I distinctly remember interviewing a particular woman in this indigenous community, and she was telling me they don't have the money to afford formal trash collection, so they dump it in the ocean or the immediate environment or burn it. And she was telling me about outbreaks of rashes and dengue fever and just all of these, you know, illnesses. And I remember writing down in my journal while I was talking to her at public health, circling it. And ever since then, that's pretty much been, my interest has always lied in the intersection of environment, um, justice, and health. And I realized I care, I started off caring about how people are impacting the environment, like, oh, what are we doing to the planet? And then I left also caring about how the environment's impacting people. That's a really nice way to put it. And I've talked on this podcast before about in uh, my journalism career, I went through the same Uh, flip where I was very interested in the natural world and water and biodiversity and creatures and wildlife. And I still am to a a large extent. But then I started realizing how all of these things act upon us. And I believe it was Shakespeare that said, we are nature too. So it's all kind of, it's all kind of the same, the same thing when you get down to it. What is a sponge lab? I don't know what a sponge lab is. <laughs> oh, yes. Okay, so we I say sponge lab because that was like the organism or the animal that we focused our research on. So, you know, like marine and freshwater sponges, basically, is what we worked okay. on. Okay. Yeah. Very cool. Very <laughs> cool. So you just, you just outlined uh, what sounded like a very pivotal mo- moment in your life. So maybe it was, maybe that was the moment or experience, but my next question, what, what, is, what was a defining moment uh, or event in your life so far that's shaped your identity? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think I've had a few defining moments, but one of the earliest that I can remember is in third grade. 
in third grade. So as I mentioned, I was born in Brooklyn and for elementary school, I went to PS 38 in Park Slope. And I remember my teacher telling us to write a poem for an Earth Day writing competition. So I wrote a poem about a tree. It rhymed. And I won the competition. (laughs) (laughs) And I was so excited. I got to plant a tree with Marty Markowitz, who was the borough president of Brooklyn at the time. And I got my picture in the newspaper. And I consider this a defining moment because it really is the first time I can remember my two loves, which are writing and the environment um, colliding, you know. And third grade was also, I was always a pretty ambitious child, I guess, or I guess I've always been an ambitious person. And by third grade, I had already declared I wanted to be an environmental scientist and um, was planning out my colleges (laughs) that I wanted to go to. (laughs) So overall, yeah, third grade. (laughs) Talk about differences in maturity. I believe I was 18 and still like, I don't even, where, where should I go to college? Someone just kind of tell me, tell me what I should do. Have you been back to Brooklyn to see if your tree has grown? Oh my goodness. No, I don't even think I would know the tree if I saw it. That would be a cool pilgrimage to go to try to find your, your third grade tree and see if it's see if it's grown up. So um, speaking of speaking of New York, so kind of following your career trajectory here, I want to talk a little bit about your time at We Act for Environmental Justice. So you were part of the Environmental Health and Justice Leadership Training. I think most of our listeners are familiar with We Act. It's a kind of one of the preeminent environmental uh, justice organizations. So what did it look like and entail educating hundreds of folks about uh, environmental justice organizing? And did you see any of the training take hold in communities? And if so, what did that what did that look like? Yeah, so the EHJLT, that's the acronym for it, was a major part of my role when I worked at WEACT. I helped to revise the entire curriculum, which had over 20 lessons on various topics. And we, while I was there, it was still, you know, heat of the pandemic. So we had all of our lessons virtually and we would have different cohorts with a theme. So say the theme was climate, then I might teach a lesson introducing climate justice and then one on clean air, one on energy and one on green solutions maybe. And in terms of seeing it taking hold, I think something that I got to witness in real time was at first, even though I taught mostly adults, my uh, class was always very quiet in the beginning. But then when it came time to relate what we were talking about to their personal experiences, that's when I saw people like really start to open up and make those connections. And I could see that passion developing in real time. So that was always that was always nice. That's excellent. It does help to connect things to people, people's personal experiences. Otherwise, uh, it can seem a little abstract for folks. So I think that's, a, that's definitely true when it comes to teaching. Um, and you've also worked on a, on a subject. We've talked on this podcast quite a bit, and our, and our founder, Dr. Ami Zoda, uh, is one of the um, foremost researchers on this. But uh, you worked on beauty justice. And we have talked about this, but I was wondering if you can just kind of outline what beauty justice means and how you all tried to educate folks about it. Yeah, thank you so much for asking this. I think beauty justice was one of the most interesting things that I learned about and got to work on while I was at WEACT. 
And for me, I would define it, I would define beauty justice uh, um, as recognizing that beauty and personal care products often contain toxic ingredients and that women of color um, are disproportionately exposed to these products for various reasons. And the ultimate goal is for the products to be marketed to women of color, for those products to be free of harmful ingredients, clearly labeled, affordable, and accessible, and also to hold responsible parties accountable. Um, and in terms of what we worked on, we had a lot of different initiatives. The most um, one that comes first to mind is the Beauty Inside Out um, initiative, which raised awareness about beauty justice in northern Manhattan. So they launched surveys to understand personal care product use, essentially, and to educate community members and work with local realtor, realtors also um, to, you know, sell safer products. And then we also partnered with Mike Shade from Toxic Free Future, and they have something called the Retail Report Card, which assesses retailer actions to eliminate toxic products. And we partnered with them to add criteria specifically on products marketed to women of color. And I also got to co-lead a session in a conference that we held last year, around this time, actually, um, in November last year. And that was on beauty justice as well. So that was a way that we were able to kind of keep the conversation going between various different stakeholders. Um, that time last year, Johnson & Johnson was also in the news because they were being, you know, sued for their baby powder, which had talc in it, which can be contaminated with asbestos, which causes cancer. And so I made a lot of infographics kind of talking about talc and, um, you know, how to limit exposure. I feel like this something that a, a recent example that really highlights what beauty justice is all about actually um, came from something that was recently trending on Twitter. So growing up as a black girl specifically, you I have this seared into my memory and it's a common, you know, thing for a lot of black girls. You go to CVS or the local beauty supply store and you see these boxes of DIY or DIY um, hair relaxers promoted to children or young girls. And it's always these cute little girls with bone straight hair and it makes you, it's marketed to children and, you know, seeing that you want to ask your parents for a relaxer. And so someone tweeted uh, a tweet that went viral and said like, oh, I wonder where all these hair relaxer box girls are today. And so a lot of the girls were like, oh, here I am. I was on one of those boxes. And it came out that a lot of them are either natural now or they never had a relaxer in the first place. Like the people would just straighten their hair with a hot comb or a flat iron and take the photo and so the girls actually never relaxed. They never used the product that was being marketed. And it was all, you know, fun and jokes and everything on Twitter. But that really made me think about how a lot of, you know, beauty and personal care companies have predatory advertising and marketing and also false advertising and marketing. And it there have been studies connecting 
the chemicals in hair relaxers to uterine fibroids. A study recently came out connecting um, hair relaxers to uterine cancer, and black women um, are diagnosed and die more often with uterine cancer than other racial groups. So thinking about that compounded on top of the fact that this is a exposure to children. And I'm sure we'll talk about, you know, how children are even more vulnerable to chemical exposures. Uh, yeah, I just think that's a great example of the, the issue at hand and, and why so many parties need to be held accountable, but in particular, the companies that are making the products. Yeah, that's a great uh, current example. And I hadn't seen that on Twitter. I'm wondering when you started doing this work, was it was was it a surprise when you would talk to, say, friends or your um, aunts and, and other women in your life to hear that, that products that they may have been using were toxic in some way? Yeah, I think so. I think a lot of people were surprised because some of these products, like I think about the baby powder, it's so, it's just an integral part of your, you know, personal care routine. And so, and there's no, there was no warning or knowledge about the fact that it had any harmful ingredients. So I think it's just kind of shocked because there was no awareness about it. And the other part of this that you mentioned uh, as a girl seeing those boxes in the drugstore is just the notion of what we find um, that what uh, media is telling us is the ideal, right, or is beautiful or what people should strive to be. And for the longest time, that was straight hair and maybe it was rail thin or whatever these mis misguided notions of what people should strive to be were plastered on all of our media. So I, I hope some of that's changing too, what we consider um, healthy and beautiful and, and what kids should strive for from all races, really. I mean, to, to just not feel like they have to look like the woman on the box in the store. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And I do think it is like, I remember in middle school, literally begging my mom to give me a relaxer because I wanted, you know, to look like that. I wanted to have straight hair, but now I see, so there's a lot more promotion of just embracing your hair, your skin, whatever in its natural state. And I think there's a lot more positive images for, for girls growing up. Good. I mean, it's hard enough to be a kid. I remember, <laughs> I remember being embarrassed because I couldn't afford at the time, I believe it was like, uh, bum equipment or polo or these brands that the cool, you know, rich kids were wearing. I can't imagine on top of that, wanting to change my, my hair and my appearance. It's hard enough to be a kid. So I hope, I hope you're right. Um, and that's a nice transition uh, thinking about children and, uh, and they're how they intersect with environmental issues and exposures. So you are now an O-Rise fellow at the EPA's office of children's environmental health protection. So what is something people might not know about children's exposure to toxics that you've you've learned there at your job? Yeah. It's funny you ask that. So my mother has worked in maternal and child health for the majority of her career. And so through observing her and learning about her work, I have known for a long time that, you know, the prenatal period as long as well as Childhood, especially early childhood, is the most critical developmental period when it comes to exposure, whether that be environmental exposures like, you know, toxic chemicals or social exposures like traumatic experiences. 
And I also learned that, you know, children's behavior patterns and their biology, like underdeveloped immune systems or organs in general, make them more vulnerable. And this might be because I'm in the field, but I do think a lot of people know that or at least, you know, recognize that. However, something I learned when I started at my current office at the EPA is something that kind of helped to change my perspective. And that is thinking of children not necessarily as a special subgroup or special population, but as a life stage that everyone experiences. And so, for example, me, I'm not a child. I don't have children, but children's health is still relevant to me because at one point I was a child and whatever I was exposed to then does impact my health, you know, today and will moving forward. And so even though that's essentially saying the same thing, I think having that that perspective of that this is a life stage that everyone goes through um, is is good to better understand children's health and to make people realize that it, it truly is important to everyone. Um, so yeah, I hope if you're listening to this and you think, oh, well, children's health really isn't relevant to me, that that changes your mind. And since you asked specifically about toxic exposures, I'll say we live in an extremely toxic world. And I believe that uh, if we can protect our most vulnerable people, for example, children, um, we can protect everyone. So I often think of uh, organizers and community organizing and the federal government uh, often maybe at odds with one another, <laughs> one uh, pushing the other to do more and the other um, moving slowly. So can you talk about since you've you've been in organizing and now you're working for uh, the EPA as a fellow, can you talk about that contrast and perhaps some areas that you see where federal researchers and organizers could could intersect to better people's health? Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, the fundamental difference between that organizing work and work at the federal level is scale. And what I mean by that is when you're in organizing and you're working in with the actual community, you're a lot closer to them. You have your boots on the ground, whereas federal level is more big picture. I do think a lot of people in the federal agency or in the federal um, government working in these different agencies recognize that disconnect and are thinking a lot harder, especially with the new, with the um, new administration's focus on environmental justice. So for example, a lot of researchers at the EPA are doing a lot more EJ related research and it will be important to consult with communities and um, to partner with them for that research. So because you don't have enough going on in your life, you were also a reporting intern at Environmental Health News. And full disclosure, when I was looking at applications for our internship, I was thinking, how is this woman going to juggle everything she has going on uh, and still and still work for us? But not only did you do it, you did it um, very well, and it was just so awesome to work with you. So I was curious, just as a as as a researcher, that's been most of your work. Um, what interested you about environmental reporting, and what surprised you about being in a newsroom? Yeah, that's a great question. So one thing that interests me about environmental reporting is being able to reach a different audience than who would be reading dense academic literature. Um, but also, I mentioned when I started the, 
this interview that one of my first loves has been writing. And I was trained in creative writing for high school when I attended the Appomattox Regional Governor's School for Arts. And one of the things I learned that I distinctly remember my, my teachers telling me is that people won't necessarily care about overarching statistics, but they will care about, for example, a story about an individual person. And having that creative writing background, I'm a strong believer that pairing narrative and storytelling with the science and the data and the statistics is a powerful way to get people to care. And I think ultimately that's always been my goal, whether I'm doing education, whether I'm doing research, whether I'm writing is to get people to care because I think when people care, then they're willing to, um, you know, get involved in issues and help to, to create change. And in terms of uh, what I, what surprised me, this might be because I watch too much TV, but <laughs> <laughs> I really thought a newsroom would be just like a extremely stressful environment. Like I'm thinking <laughs> everyone's, you know, going crazy with deadlines and, and you do so much is what um, I noticed or realized at environmental health news, you are doing so much work, but you still have time for jokes and laughs and to share personal tidbits about your life. So I don't know if that's unique to environmental health news, but I did find that surprising. <laughs> well, that's very good to hear. I can't say on most exit interviews, the first thing I hear from interns when I ask about our culture is uh, chill is usually the right word. And maybe <laughs> maybe the function of having a, a former hippie as an editor myself uh, has something to do with that. But that's good to hear. And I just, I, I, on a personal my personal thought is any work environment you're in, whether it's a newsroom or a, a research lab or whatever, um, to, you have to take time to smile and get to know people. And also nowadays, you have to recognize the mental rigors of what we're what we're not only what we're dealing with on a day to day basis, um, which is heavy stuff in the environmental environmental field. But I don't know about you, but just staring at a screen and being on a screen for so many hours, um, I think it's just really important to take mental breaks. So that's, I'll get off my soapbox now, but I do, I'm just a big fan of uh, workplaces where people are comfortable and happy and not feeling stressed all the time. So I'm glad yeah. you experienced that. Yeah, it really does help. It does. So uh, we've talked a lot about the environment and people, but let's talk about the wildlife and the trees and the and the creatures and stuff because that was my first love, and I happen to know that you love the outdoors and hiking and being outside. So when did that become part of your life? When I think of Brooklyn, I don't necessarily <laughs> think of of hiking, and uh, so where where did that come in your life, and what does being in nature mean to you? Yeah, thank you for asking that. Um, so in my early childhood in Brooklyn, that is where I fell in love with nature, I would say. I distinctly remember my mom bringing me to Prospect Park often, but I thought that it was the forest. So I would just ask, <laughs> <laughs> I would just ask like, oh, mom, can you take me to the forest? And that was our little thing. <laughs> Didn't know it was Prospect Park, but you know. <laughs> But as I got older and I started to have more social awareness, I didn't really do outdoorsy things. Like in general, my family wasn't the family to go hiking or camping. And like many other people of color, I viewed those 
activities. I associate those activities with whiteness. Um, and that, that's a whole nother, um, you know, soapbox, but, but it wasn't until college and I was forced, like I said, doing my sponge research, I was forced to go kayaking and snorkel. And then I was forced to go hiking in the rainforest to collect my bug traps and leaves when I was abroad, but that was still doing it for work, not really for fun. And then after graduating college in 2018, I served AmeriCorps for a year in Baltimore. And I, I worked on a nature preserve with a nonprofit and I taught environmental education to youth of Baltimore, primarily black and brown children. And part of my job was getting them on the nature preserve and exposing them to nature. And that's when I started to think more critically about, you know, the benefits of the outdoors and, and who has access to it and who feels included in those activities. And I started to think, why is it that I don't see many people personally that look like me that are, you know, the poster people for these activities? Um, and I asked a friend who I knew was an avid hiker if I could go with her. And ever since then, I've been hooked. I love it so much. And I have an Instagram page called AJ for Adventure where I feature my own adventures as well as other people of color just to change the narrative, you know, about who belongs outdoors and um, to promote the visibly, you know, showing that the outdoors are for everyone. So, yeah. That's excellent. And this is another space, anecdotally, that I feel like I've seen movement in the last few years. And maybe it's just paying more attention to social media accounts like your own. And there are there are others out there. Um, and I encourage any listeners to check out our, our past podcast with Dr. Jennifer Roberts, who's in Maryland, who talks extensively about this this very issue and how she's trying to change it. Um, it was one of my very favorite podcasts to do. So check that out. And so you've been, whether it's hiking or researching or organizing, communicating, you've been uh, on many different angles of in the environmental movement. What makes you optimistic? What are you hopeful about? That is a great question. I do find it hard sometimes to stay optimistic in this field, but right now I am really optimistic and that has a lot to do with all the momentum around environmental justice right now. The Biden administration has made it clear that environmental justice is a priority. There's billions of dollars of funding going into environmental justice. In academia, I've noticed a lot more researchers talking about how important it is to do community-engaged research that's non-extractive and that's respecting the expertise of the community and, you know, working in partnership, true partnership with their uh, community members. I've seen a lot of conversation and, and um, progress around that. And even, you know, in media and communications, I've seen a lot more stories and, you know, other types of media about environmental justice. So I think that's a good sign. And I just hope the momentum keeps going and doesn't, you know, fizzle out. And I don't remember if I learned this from your application when you became an intern or from just looking, researching you online before we brought you aboard EHN, but I know you play guitar and we've talked about this. I play guitar as well. What songs are you working on right now? And I'm also curious, do you play in front of people or is this just for yourself? Yeah, thank you for asking. Yes, I have a beautiful 
oak colored Martin acoustic electric <laughs> that I love. And I recently learned how to play Dreams by Fleetwood Mac, as well as Redemption Song by Bob Marley. So those are my two most recent songs. And I mostly play for myself. Every now and then I might do a coffee house or an open mic, but it's kind of just, you know, a way to have my own music therapy and, you know, use another part of my brain, (laughs) the creative part. So, yeah. I always say the same thing. I, I will just take breaks during the day and play an instrument for a little bit because it, it does, it hits that other side of the brain. I always say the same, the exact same thing. So that's very cool. So Ashley, we are nearing the end here and I'd like to have rapid fire questions. Well, just a couple of them here, three of them where you can just answer with one word or one phrase and then we can move on. So the first one is the best piece of advice I've ever been given is to cherish the present because you can't change the past and you can't control the future. When I wake up, the first thing I do is... I hate to say it, but I hit snooze. (laughs) (laughs) Not a morning person. (laughs) (laughs) The first concert I ever went to was... I think the first concert I ever went to was J. Cole. He's a rapper. And last question, what is the last book you read for fun? Ooh, I recently read this novel called Transcendent Kingdom by Yaa Jossi. Beautiful, beautiful book. Highly recommend it. Tell me a little bit about it. Oh, so it's a story that covers so many topics like science, religion, addiction, mental health, race, love. And it basically is about this um, this scientist, this researcher who is studying psychology and trying to understand um, why addiction, like what is it that makes people addicted to, to drugs. And it's basically because her brother was a heroin addict in high school and ended up passing away. And that's kind of the basis of the story, but it really brings you on such a beautiful and emotional journey. So it was really good. Excellent. Well, Ashley, thank you so much for taking time today. You're one of those people that I'm just so glad to have met uh, doing this work. And thank you so much for being here today. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed this. All right. That is all for this week, folks. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Ashley. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit agentsofchangenej.org. And while you're there, click the donate button and support us. You can also find Agents of Change on Twitter and Instagram. And please follow us on Spotify, iTunes, or Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts and listen to this and all past episodes. This podcast was written, recorded, produced, and edited by me with outreach, scheduling, and support from the rest of the team. Dr. Ami Zoda, Dr. Yoshida Ornelas-Fanhorn, Dr. Max Ong, Dr. Lariah Edwards, Summer Ahmad, and Maria Paula Rubiano. Our music is Now Sun by Poddington Bear. You can email the team at agentsofchangenej at gmail.com and sign up for our monthly Agents of Change newsletter at the program homepage. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope to keep these important conversations on diversity and science and health going. Join me next time when I speak with Beaumont Taylor Morton, the Director of Environmental Health and Education at WEACT for Environmental Justice. Have a great week, folks.